so much of that has to do with the fact that I had been working with Alana Heim and, and her sisters in the band Heim. And I was so inspired um, by our collaboration, um, which started about six or seven years ago, maybe more now. And <clears throat> I, I, I have a friend, Gary Getzman, who is a producer who works with Tom Hanks. And, and many, many years ago, before he was a producer, he was a child actor. And he would tell me stories of his youth as a child actor here in Los Angeles. And I always found them to be completely hilarious, um, always stranger than fiction. They're always peculiar. They always, um, they always tickled me because he grew up in the same part of the world that, that I grew up in here in the San Fernando Valley. So everything in his stories made sense to me. You see, I had, I, they were all, they were all very real places and real situations that I could relate to. So the combination of these things just seemed impossible to resist. Welcome back to a brand new episode of Not A Bomb Podcast. This is the show where we go and talk about box office bombs as well as movies that critics didn't like. Brad, I, this was my pick, episode 172, and I think I picked a movie that both you like as well as you're a big fan of the director, right? Correct, on both of those statements. So what are we talking about tonight? We are talking about 2021's comedy drama directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, no relation to me, sadly, licorice pizza yes so i've been dying to talk about this film and look if if you're talking about a film of this caliber you got to bring in the heavy gun so we we begged and pleaded for somebody to come back to the podcast brad do you want to introduce our special guest for this week yeah we are happy to welcome back michelle meek writer filmmaker professor uh all sorts of things ted talker as well all sorts of things and podcaster uh, Michelle, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me again. Oh, it's we were so excited. So as a, as a scholar, more importantly, a teacher, school's back in session and you're teaching a class this semester, right? Um, yes. I, I was just real curious. What What is the class on? And can you give us sort of like a, a hint of what's on the syllabus or what you guys are doing right now in that class? Sure. I'm actually teaching a documentary film production class this semester. So students are actually making their own documentaries. But as part of that, we watch a lot of documentaries together. And some of the films I have on the syllabus <clears throat> are some of the films I have on the syllabus are uh, Paris is Burning, Camera Person, Roger and Me, Ooh. Exit Through the Gift Shop, um, oh, I, I kind of like to mix it up a little bit, but we actually watch quite a lot of short documentaries that are either from film festivals. We watch some student short documentaries just because I like the students to see things that they can actually make. Okay. <laughs> um, in addition to getting a sense of some films that are more ambitious and, and part of film history. So will everybody end up presenting a documentary at the end of the semester or um, is this just kind of the homework and preparation for them to go off and do this? 
Yeah, they actually will make several films throughout the semester. They make an observational documentary, then they make um, an interview documentary, and then they make a final project that is some, it depends on the form they want. It could be a more abstract, poetic form, or it could be something that is more traditional type doc. Um, but it's usually a pretty narrow kind of story. You know, one, one of my students once made it about, um, her aunt who raises chickens, for instance. So it was about raising chickens and kind of a window into that. And it was very interesting and entertaining, but, you know, very narrow because that's, you have to think when you're making a documentary, what do you have access to? Right. And, and then you're, especially when we're making something in the course of a semester, like, what can you make with almost no budget and uh, limited time, extremely limited time. So, okay. That makes sense. And you just had, so there was a, last time we were talking, there was a film that you were working on a short film. And I think in just following you on sort of uh, Instagram and, and the social platform that has started to pop up at some of the film festivals, right? Yes. I am very excited about that. So you want to tell us a little bit about that because if you go to your website, you can see some of your past films on there. This one isn't available yet. I've been kind of excited uh, when I read the description of it. But do you want to talk about that real quick? And sure, where can where can people possibly like where is is this going to show up in the public um, sometime soon? Definitely. So it's a short film called Bay Creek Tennis Camp, and it's a short narrative film, kind of a family friendly kids film of sorts. And the plot is that there's a tennis coach who's been kind of doing things his way for many decades, which entails splitting the kids by gender. And the kids decide to put up uh, resistance to that. <clears throat> sorry. No, that's all right. um, so in the, um, the, the film right now is screening only at film festivals. And it's, I'm really excited to see that it's gotten into a couple of Academy Award qualifying film fests. Now, oh, nice. that doesn't mean that it will be up for an Academy Award. No, no, no. Just I'm remember when you're up there on stage accepting yet. your award, just drop our name. We'll be happy. That's fine. Right. Yeah, I'm sure if you get up on a stage and say something about a bomb, it'll go real well. <laughs> I said not a bomb, not yeah, a bomb. Not right, a bomb. right, right. <laughs> exactly. But, and it is actually, some of the film festivals now do screenings online, in fact. So... I, I, there are going to be a couple in October, I think, where you're going to be able to watch it as part of compilation of short films, and that's online. So there will oh, nice. be an opportunity to watch it in October. Fantastic. Yeah. I, I can't wait to see it. Uh, well, let's let's dive into this week's film. I, I got a feeling it's going to be a super interesting conversation, especially with you on the podcast, because I, I have some questions for you, um, especially after reading your book. Uh, big fan. But we always start with Brad. Brad takes us back in time. We don't have to go very far back on this one because this film was released in 2021. But Brad, we, let, let's talk about when Licorice Pizza um, came out into the theaters and, and how it did, both with the general audience and the ticket buyers as well as the critics. Yeah, so release November 26th of 2021. So we're coming up on the two-year anniversary of this film. With a reported budget of $40 million, we're looking at a return of 17.3 domestically, almost 16 million internationally, so roughly about $33 million total. So this film fails to make back its production budgets. Um, opening weekend, Troy, 
Now, do we remember far back to 2021? I don't uh, remember it, last week, so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so it it um, only opens up in four theaters up until Christmas. So I'm going to do its uh, Christmas time frame because four theaters is no fun. Um, licorice Pizza rakes in, let's see, $1.9 million. That's good enough for eighth place. It gets beat out by Spider-Man No Way Home, Sing 2, The Matrix, the Kingsman, that's the second one, right? Yeah. Oh, no, that's, no, the, that's prequel, the third the one, or prequel. Yeah, it's the yeah, third film, yep. but it was a prequel. Yep. American Underdog, West Side, West Side Story, and Journal for Jordan, which I had never heard of. Oh, okay. Me neither. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I have no idea yeah. what that film is. All right. Uh, critically, Licorice Pizza sits at a 90% with the critics and a 66% with the audience. Uh, pretty big difference there with the critics and the audience. Oh boy, Troy, you ready for the Christian website movieguide.org? Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm really ready for their interpretation yes. of this film. So, we'll Michelle, are are you familiar with movieguide.org? I am not. Okay, so movieguide.org is a Christian website. So you know they are they are things to get to judge on what is good and what is bad. They've. Uh, review films mostly for their content, not for their quality, and they use a really weird scale. It is a plus four scale, so that's the best you can do, and minus four, which is means you're going to hell if you see this film. Uh, Troy, where does Licorice Pizza sit on their scale? Well, I'll, I'll defer to Michelle. Do you want to take a guess in terms of where a critic for this website, after they walked out of Licorice Pizza, where they would where they would rank it on their scale? Well, first of all, I think that's fascinating because it's like a new legion of decency for the contemporary era. It, it is. But, it's, <laughs> it's straight out of your book. Is anyone listening, though? <laughs> I mean, I'm just wondering. Okay, oh, so, people, people read this know? website. Okay. They do. They do. Um, so I would, I'm going to guess three. A like positive a three. three or ne- minus <laughs> like three? Minus no, negative three. three. <laughs> negative three. I'm going negative four on this one. I I feel flat out they would have walked out of this clutching their pearls. I was actually really surprised. It is only a negative two. Really? Okay. Yes. All right. But when you read it, it doesn't read like a negative two, Troy. So we have, <laughs> here we go. Pagan worldviews. Uh, yes. We have light mixed pagan worldview where some pagan romantic and secular behavior but some light moral elements, such as young Jewish woman, yells her her, Jew, her new Jewish boyfriend for claiming to be an atheist in front of her family at dinner when the father starts to lead a mealtime prayer. So, I, okay, so that just gives it like a bunch of brownie points there because she okay. yelled at him for being an atheist, or he did. Um, some overt pro-capitalist elements, plus it's revealed that a supporting character who's running for mayor of Los Angeles has a secret homosexual lover. So the lead oh, female I character about that. Yeah, <laughs> has an uncomfortable scene, uncomfortable scene. I, the homosexuality isn't the thing that's uncomfortable about that scene, but mm-hmm. we'll get there uh, with them in the restaurant that drives the lover home. There's a light implied politically correct attitude towards this situation. Foul language, Troy 52 obscenities, seven GD profanities and four light profanities plus young Jewish woman crudely ask her Jewish boyfriend about being circumcised because he's embarrassed her er, at her earlier dinner when her father uh, 
the, the sentence is terrible. Her, her. Oh yeah, Michelle. One thing. So we're <laughs> okay. we're trying a GoFundMe campaign to get them like <laughs> Grammarly or something okay, subscription because they're terrible. Well, this is not a sentence because it's all one about being circumcised because he embarrassed her earlier at dinner when her father that he's an atheist. That <laughs> doesn't make any sense. Good. Lord. Okay. <laughs> They got lost in all those clauses, yeah. I think. Yeah. They, <laughs> they love they love clause. Oh my god. All right. Light, sometimes comical violence includes teenager takes golf club and smashes window of Ferrari because crazy absent owner threatened to kill his family and reckless driving of truck backwards down a hill because the truck has run out of gas. And a man on a motorcycle recklessly jumps a deliberate jumps a deliberately fire set on a golf course. Deliberately fire set. Okay, that's one way to say it. And woman falls uh, from the back of the cycle when he starts uh, his run. I, I love how they just pick scenes out. And that's that's the uh, review. It's interesting to see the ones that they found the most egregious. Like, I would not have, I mean, I think the thing I wouldn't have imagined is that that scene was particularly disturbing to them. Of, I guess I guess it was. I don't I know. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Nudity. No nudity, but two or three girls wear bikinis in waterbed store, and father gets upset when the daughter comes home in a bikini. Alcohol use, some alcohol use, and drugs. Hold on, time out. They don't. They don't mention the scene where she shows things to him because he's bugging her about it. They totally glossed over that. Okay. The the reviewer probably passed out during that scene. (laughs) What about the scene where she like comes on to the customer and says she's going to go meet them at their house? Oh yeah. That's very explicit. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Smoking and or drug use and abuse, brief smoking and one or two references to marijuana and a joke about LSD. And last but not least, this is the category for miscellaneous immortality, immorality, immortality, (laughs) Uh, light immorality, such as vandalism. Crazy rich man threatens a boy's family if he messes up his house while he's delivering and filling a waterbed to the man's fancy home. Some reckless driving of a truck and a motorcycle, but no one is really hurts. And two cops mistakenly arrest a teenager boy for murder because he matches the description but an eyewitness right away says the boy is not the killer they leave away the fact that like you know they pretty much violate that kid's rights but you know whatever um okay troy films you could have seen in november of 2001 we have eternals remember eternals yeah don lee was in the eternals we just talked about don lee so yeah, that's correct um god there was a clifford the big red dog which my daughter really loves. <laughs> my brother, my daughter is also four. Belfast, Red Notice, Troy. Ugh, that was that yep. stupid Netflix movie. Okay. Um, and then we have that's about it. There's oh, Ghostbusters Afterlife is the other big one. Oh. And King Richard. Oh yeah, remember, remember Will Smith? Yeah, I yeah I remember him. He had a career <laughs> at one point. <laughs> Didn't he win the Oscar for that? That's yeah, that's the film. Yeah, that's the one. That's the catalyst. Oh, and House of Gucci. I want to mention House of Gucci and Resident Evil. Welcome to Raccoon City. Those are the films you could have seen November of 2021. Did anybody see Licorice Pizza in the theater? Between the three of us, I did not. I did not. Okay, I didn't either. It would. It was one of those films that uh, when it opened, it was. Uh, oh, we'll get to that one. But I don't. I feel like it didn't stay very long. Um, at least, well, in like the I said, Baltimore it area. opened in like four theaters for a while, and then opened 
bigger and then was basically gone. It came back. I mean, this is obviously one of those releases that I think they planned um, late in the cycle thinking that, okay, this is going to be one of those Academy Award winning films that has some mm. legs onto it. Cause I remember it coming back and again, it was, Hey, let's try and go see that. But I didn't catch it until home media actually. Um, Same. okay. The other question I have, uh, is anyone here a high end fan? Uh, my wife really loves it. I know she your wife just likes went, it. went yeah. to a concert like a month ago. Okay. You, Michelle, are you? Mm, no. Okay. I mean, you know, not, Anti, not anti. Okay, <laughs> that's fair. Well, let's let's talk about some of the people. I had to. Ask, I asked her if is it Haim or Haim, and she said it's Haim. Haim. So like, yeah. Okay, good. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I big fan. I have all the albums. Um, we'll we'll talk about that. So uh, let's let's talk about the people behind the camera, in front of the camera. We'll start with director Paul Thomas Anderson. Now, Brad. Yes. You have brought his name up several times, so I'm just going to kick it over to you real quick. Okay. Paul Thomas Anderson, go. I mean, why why do you mention him all the time? Because I think he's one of our greatest contemporary directors that we have. Um, you know, he he comes up in the 90s, which is like when I'm really getting into film. So Heart 8. And then when I saw Boogie Nights when I was like 15 years old, it was a, a revelation to me. Um, and I thought it was one of the greatest things I've ever seen. I still stand behind that. I think Boogie Nights is infinitely watchable. Then he comes with out with Magnolia, which Troy, I know you're not going to disagree with this. That is Tom Cruise's greatest performance. He should have won an Academy Award for Magnolia. Um, yeah, it was a travesty that he did not. It's it, it between that film and Born on the Fourth of July and even Rain Man. I mean, those are the films that you would probably yep. hold up and say, yes, this guy can act. And then, of course, you know, he makes Adam Sandler have a lot of uh, prestige with uh, Punch Drunk Love. And you're like, wow, Adam Sandler can really do some things. And then I saw There Will Be Blood and thought Paul Thomas Anderson was probably <laughs> one of the greatest filmmakers ever because I think There Will Be Blood is the perfect film. Um, and yeah, he's one of the directors cause he's only got nine films, him and Tarantino, you know, basically are, are nine for nine, but, um, yeah, I think I've seen everything and pretty much love everything that he's done. Inherent vice is a great film. The master is a great film. All of his films are just spectacular. I, I love his whole filmography so and I love his Fiona Apple videos as well. Yeah, he's uh, he's done a lot. I of was music under the videos. impression that he did uh, Criminal, but he did not direct Criminal. Someone else did that. Cause, okay, so uh, no no duds in his filmography, in your opinion, not even close. Okay, Michelle, what, where do you land with uh, Mr. Anderson? Are you? Are I you have to admit that I have not watched every single one of his films the way that you have, so I can't really speak to it as well as you can. I mean, I think that. I think this is not going to be a popular opinion, but I don't really love Boogie Nights. I know everybody loves that movie, and I I need to think through exactly why I don't love it that much. But, um, but I think you know I think it, he's obviously a very talented director who knows how to you know kind of hit on a certain zeitgeist or you know. And and I think he he makes marketable and popular films that kind of are almost like little like cult classics in a in a way. So that's that's something. Okay, 
I'm I'm going to reserve a majority of my opinion until we talk about this film. I I will say this. Uh, I have not seen all of his films, and I think he's pretty good. So we'll stop there, and and I'll I'll talk about it when we get to talking about the film. I know, but I think we could all agree he's better. He's the best Paul Anderson dr- filmmaker that that we have. It's not Paul W S. It's Paul Thomasing. Really, over all those Resident Evil movies? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, the the thing about the movies that he will end up directing is he's usually the screenwriter too. So no different with Licorice Pizza. He he wrote the screenplay here. When when we talk about some of the credits, this is kind of interesting. Um, this is going to be a real quick discussion because this film behind the scenes is a lot of first time, right? So when you get to cinematography, there's actually two names, uh, Paul Thomas well, Anderson. Hold on, hold on. I, I, I want to just bring up, because yeah. we do a film about, or do a podcast about films that don't make any money. Paul Thomas Anderson has one hit in his filmography, you would say. The others don't make back their production budget. <laughs> there well, which blood which is the hit? Oh, There, there Will, will be, be Blood made 76 on a 25. The rest of them are right around production budget. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Phantom Thread made like nine million overproduction, but again, it's not well. Boogie Nates is also uh, one of the, the other ones, but most of his films aren't huge hits. I mean, There Would Be Blood is his highest-grossing film at seventy-six million dollars. How do they keep getting funded? I think because of the critical I think because there's a lot of prestige that comes with them. I guess. Well, and hmm. I'm I'm sure this is a time period because if you look at Heart Eight going up to um, well, let's just say early two thousands, I'm sure his movies had some, um, leg on them in the home media market too. So I, right. I, I think at the end of the day, he's by the box office and yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, he, I think he's one of those that because he writes and directs his own stuff, he has a little pedigree to him. And even if you don't see his films at the movie theater, people are catching them later on especially if they get nominated for Academy Awards, et cetera. So he doesn't make a lot of films, and I'm sure he would be one of the ones that might talk about funding, like getting funding for his projects is probably difficult. Um, And he's not ever going to get, at this point, a big major blockbuster budget. And Licorice Pizza 2021, probably a $40 million. (laughs) Compared to some of the $200, $300 million budgets, that's probably pretty small for a studio, right? Yeah, I would I would say so. And that's the production budget, right? That doesn't yeah. include like the marketing expenses. No, it's usually it's usually about two x on that. So right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, c- cinematography. He actually has uh, a credit for shooting this film. He was uncredited on Phantom Thread in 2017, and I guess due to some of the different rules about how you can put your name for that, he couldn't get it on Phantom Thread, but he got it on this one. But he shares it with Michael Bauman. And uh, this is Michael's only film credit as cinematographer as well. Most of his credits are camera and electrical department. So if you go to IMDb or you know, Wikipedia or something, you'll see his name, but it's not for cinematography. So he was probably the token cinematographer on this, and Paul Thomas Anderson was probably the real cinematographer. Could be. I mean, when you start... So let's talk about editor, Andy Jurgensen. This is his only film credit as an editor. Most of his other credits as editor are for music videos, and a lot of those are for the videos that Anderson directed because he did videos for Hyam and uh, Fiona Apple, et cetera. 
Um, music is interesting. You get Johnny Greenwood, who did the music for this. So he's the lead guitarist and keyboardist for Radiohead. Um, I think, and now, Brad, you're the expert on this, but didn't they start collaborating together on There Will Be Blood? That was sort of the first major film they did together? Yes, yeah. Okay, and then we've got The Master, Inherent Vice, Phantom Thread, Liquor's Pizza, so he's he's been working on everything. Um, another interesting one is Production Designer, which, I mean, this thing, obviously, uh, for a film set in the 70s, it looks exactly like it came out of the 70s. And, and you can really credit the production design as well as the cinematography for that. But Florentia Martin was the production designer. Licorice Pizza was her first film with that credit, hmm. um, but then went on to do Blonde and Babylon in 2022. So a lot of first times. And, and again, this is another one where you look at her uh, credits and she worked on films, set designer, costume, et cetera. But this was her first um production designer credit let's talk about the people in front of the screen and again you're gonna hear a lot of hey this is their first movie right what's interesting about this is the characters in the film are composed of fictional characters inspired by real life people as well as real life people as characters in the film does that make sense did i say that correctly i think maybe Okay. Say it again. Okay. So you have some folks that are fictional, but they're mm -hmm. based on real life characters. So they're inspired by real people. Inspired by real people in their stories. Then you have characters in the film who are actually um, the real people uh, in the real world. Now, they're not played by the real people. Um, and, oh, like Bradley Cooper. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. Like okay. John Peters is in this film. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the two stars in here, um, Alana Haim or Haim, excuse me, as Alana. So she is member of the uh, trio Haim, which if go listen to Days Are Gone, that's their best. It's their first album. It's awesome. They've done three albums. I think the third one was nominated for a Grammy. Um, this is her film debut. And uh, if you're like, hey, the, the other guy. Gary, he looks an awful lot like Philip Seymour Hoffman. Well, that's because it's Philip Seymour Hoffman's son, oh. Cooper Hoffman. And this is his film debut. Um, and, and the way the story goes is um, I believe Anderson Hoffman were great friends. Oh, they loved each other. Yeah, yeah. their families knew each other. And um, the Hyams family knew these two as well. So a lot of these are just just friends, at the end of the day, coming together to make a film, which is kind of interesting. I don't know if an actor's death has affected me more than Philip Seymour Hoffman's for some reason. When the, he, when he passed away, it really bothered me. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Um, I don't know. I, I would kind of agree with that. You, when he left, there was certainly a void, especially in the independent um, film world uh, from an acting perspective. But so, he was born to play Donald Trump. Like we would have gotten just, <laughs> he would have been the best Donald Trump in a film. I, I think you're right. So this is an example, Alana and Gary, that they are fictional characters, but Gary specifically is based on film producer and former child actor, Gary Getzman. A um, little bit more on that. Then you get Mary Elizabeth Ellis as Mama Anita, a fictional character I, I just I want to call her name out because I'm a fan of Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Yeah, 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 and, yep. 
and uh, she's the waitress. So, um, and she is actually married to, to Charlie in real life. Here's where you get other um, fictional characters that are based on real life people. Sean Penn plays Jack Holden. Oh, right. mm-hmm. um, Jack is based on William Holden. Um, Tom Waits as Rex Blau. Now Rex is based on directors Mark Robson and John Houston. And I think we talked about Tom Waits just a little bit because um, he showed up in Mystery Men. Yeah, boy, uh, Tom Waits' voice. It is like I have smoked cigarettes my entire life uh, and I'm going to continue to keep smoking <laughs> cigarettes because it <laughs> it's like this weird like Gary Busey, Nick Nolte combination. It's just like a weird thing, man. He has a presence, man. Um, he does, yeah. You should do. Is there has there ever been a documentary on Tom Waits? I'm, I, oh, there has to have been, right? Yes, there's. I bet there, there's five of them, Troy. Okay. <laughs> if there wasn't, I was going to say Michelle would be a perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and my students have a new project. Yes, just <laughs> if you can get access to Tom Waits, do a semester of Tom Waits documentaries. They've yes, got to be the greatest. Tom Waits is famously a super nice guy, Troy. I think he's one of like the meanest people ever. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Bad idea then. All right. Um, Now here we get into actors playing real life people, starting with Bradley Cooper, who plays John Peters. Um, Michelle, you you know, John Peters. Um, Do you know like some of the stories about John Peters? I don't really know much about him. So fill me in. Oh, okay. So famous producer. Um, One of the best things you can do is go on the internet and search Kevin Smith uh, talking about John Peters, um, specifically the Superman story where the, John, the giant spider, John Peters out. wanted a, a giant spider and he wanted to just get rid of all of the Superman traits. And it, it really feels like a cocaine fueled conversation the way Kevin Smith describes it. <laughs> John Peters was the, was the mastermind behind uh, Superman lives and having uh, Nicholas Cage play Superman. Very very famous Hollywood producer. Um, we've talked about to use a lot of those ideas in wild, wild west. And we see how that worked out. <laughs> he did. We've talked about a few of his films, specifically tango and cash and money train. Um, so outside of the films that he made, he was sort of uh, known for his personal life too. He was married four times, but his most, I guess, high profile marriage was to Barbara Streisand. Um, and that comes out in this film as well, but yeah, there, it just, John, I don't think you said it correctly. Um, yeah. And, and then I love this John C. Riley shows up in the film for like one second. He's playing Fred Gwynn, Herman Munster. It's uncredited at the teen, at the teen, uh, at the teen thing, expo. Yeah. yeah. And there's, there's tons of uh, characters that pop up here and there that are actually um, just based on real-life celebrities or, or, or people in Hollywood. Here are some other actors and actresses in the film. Let me, let me see if you, uh, if you recognize any of these names. We get George DiCaprio. So he's the guy who first sells the water mattress. And, yes, that's father of Leo DiCaprio. Okay. Yeah. We get Destry Allen Spielberg is in this film, daughter of Steven Spielberg. Is this just nepotism, the movie? I think we're we're finding out how the film was funded. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. I think everybody just chipped in a quarter and, (laughs) um, and, and the real life family, 
um, the Hayams are in this film. So you get uh, the two sisters who are also in the band, Danielle and Esta. Uh, the father and mother, Mordecai and Donna, are also Alana's parents in real life. So if that interaction feels authentic, it's because that's the family, right? Sure. Did you mention John Michael Higgins? No, I did not. The we, restaurant owner. Um, there you the go. Japanese wives. <laughs> yes. Oh God. Uh, we, we have so much to talk about. Okay. Little production and development around 2001. Anderson was walking by a middle school in Los Angeles on picture day. He observed one of the students nagging the female photographer and had an idea of the student having a romantic relationship with the photographer. That's one version of the story. There's another version out there um, that talks about Anderson in an interview admitted to using a crush on one of his teachers as inspiration to the script. Do you know who that crush was? She's in the film. Alana's mother, Donna Hyam, was actually yeah his teacher. (laughs) Okay. Does that add another weird element to this? Okay, so this film kind of just made a weird turn for me. It did, yeah. Again, just there's two when you, hey, where did the idea of this film came up? Those are the two stories. So eventually the screenplay evolved from this experience and additional stories told to Anderson by his friend, Gary Getzman. I hope I'm saying that last name right. Who was a child actor who had starred in the film Yours, Mine, and Ours with Lucille Ball. He also appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show and eventually started a waterbed company and pinball arcade. Getzman at one time delivered a waterbed to John Peter's home. And uh, that's where this Gary character all comes from. Anderson considered Fast Times at Ridgemont High and American Graffiti as major influences in making licorice pizza. Anderson wrote the screenplay with Alana Hyam in mind and offered her the lead role in summer of 2019. Uh, And we've talked about this. He has a close connection with that band, having directed several of their music videos and as a close family friend of the family. Um, And obviously, Donna was his teacher at one point. Anderson and Michael Bauman shot Licorice Pizza on 35mm film. So that's kind of unusual for this time period. And they were using older lenses in order to create the film's 1970s texture, which I I think we would all agree looks beautiful. Mm -hmm. The Mm -hmm. film was a box office bomb, but was acclaimed by critics and received three nominations at the 94th Academy Awards. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, and it made it uh, Metro Golden Mayer's first fully produced, marketed, and distributed film to be nominated for Best Picture since Rain Man in 1988. It also received three awards from the National Board of Review, including Best Film, and was named one of the best films of 2021 by the American Film Institute. It received four nominations at the 79th Golden Globe Awards, including Best Motion Picture for Musical or Comedy, and Anderson actually won the BAFTA Award for Best Original Screenplay. Now, we're not going to talk about it just yet. I want to save this, but on its release, the film generated some controversy around the romance between the main characters, one of whom is 25 and the other is 15, It also came under fire in the media for scenes in which the character Jerry, which you just mentioned, Brad, uses a demeaning mock Asian accent when speaking to his Japanese wives, which um, there's two of these scenes in there. So 
Uh, other than that, I think it had to do a little pause because of COVID, but it was a, it was a pretty quiet um, production. Nothing really major happened. And again, if, if you look at everybody who stars in it and worked on it, it's a lot of, um, well, nepotism. That, that's what it is. <laughs> um, how about we take I mean, that's a, Hollywood in general anyway, so. It, it is. Um, that, that brings up a good question. I mean, you're teaching film in film school. Does this does this ever come up in your classes or from your students? Um, just how hard it is to get into Hollywood without that connection, or do or are they I just mean, interested in making movies? I think a lot of them are interested in making movies, and I think I think that it, it's hard. I think as as students, you know, you're kind of thinking of Hollywood, but really, there's so many different places to work in and around film that are not that. And honest, if you want to do that, obviously you have to go out there and you have to really commit to making that your goal. And that's a whole different thing. And not everyone really wants to do that when, when it really comes down to it. So, um, I don't know. I mean, I think that, I think that there's definitely, I've had many students over the years who want to be like the next Quentin Tarantino or something like that. And, you know, it, that's, I don't want to burst anyone's bubble, I guess, but it is, it is a tough road. Let's just say. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess it, it's the same as professional sports, right? So right, exactly. Uh, my kids and I, I know Brad, you're starting to, to experience this. I don't know if, if your kids did Michelle, but I mean, my daughter played um, travel softball in on top of high school softball. And when, when you get down into the college and you and colleges are knocking on your door for scholarships, et cetera, it's few and far between. Um, and then even for my son who was doing baseball and tennis, same kind of thing. And when you start to look at the math or statistics, it, I mean, there's not a lot of money out there. It's a very, very small percentage. You are actually going to make it all the way and, and turn it into a career. And I feel like Hollywood is very much has the same, I don't know, um, risk analytics behind it too. <laughs> it's just, it's it's a risky industry to get into and think that you're actually going to make a, a I don't know a really good living out of if you actually look at the number of people who try. Yeah, and I think it takes a massive amount of determination. I mean, I definitely have friends who were able to make their way through that system, but they were just really motivated to make that happen and were willing to you know stick with it. I guess. Yeah, it's like anything. It, mm -hmm. consistency, tenacity. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's take a quick break. And uh, I really, I really want to get into this conversation. There is so much to talk about with this film. So uh, stay tuned. When we come back, we're going to talk about licorice pizza. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Love, soft as an easy chair. Barbara Streisand, Chris Christopherson, fresh as the morning air, 
everything. If you ever die, I'll kill you. But sometimes, everything isn't enough. I'm never going to die. Barbara Streisand, Chris Christopherson. A star is born. Now, at a theater near you. Rated R. We're back. Michelle, I want to start with you. Real quick, this wasn't your first time seeing the film, right? It actually was, believe it or not. Oh, I had not okay. seen the, I know. I had not seen this film. It has been on my list for a really long time, especially because it is in the genre of a, quote, teen film or what I would call a teen film. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was really happy to watch it and be able to discuss it. So we are the benefactors of your... <laughs> First time view and your opinion. Okay, lay it on us. What what did you think? Well, um, I have a lot of thoughts. I'm trying to think about how to organize them. I mean, one of the things that I will say is that this film feels like it's within the genre of the transgressive story of an older person and a younger person, I guess, an adult teen relationship. Um, and as far as that goes... In more contemporary films, there does seem to be um, a little bit of a pattern to set those in the past to make them seem not so transgressive that we can't even stomach watching them. And I'm thinking of a film, I don't know if either of you have seen Diary of a Teenage Girl, for instance, but that film is takes place in the past and it's about a, a also 15-year-old, but this time a girl who has a pretty graphic sexual relationship with her mother's boyfriend, who's in his 30s. Oh. Um, To me, I couldn't help as I was watching it to be thinking of those two films side by side and kind of comparing them a little bit. And I really like the film Diary of a Teenage Girl. And I think it's an incredibly... um, I want to say brave film in the sense that it shows something that we often just don't see. Um, In in this film, the thing that kept bugging me a lot is what does she see in him? I just, I I was really having (laughs) trouble (laughs) understanding that. And, and, you know, it wasn't, I mean, obviously part of it is that he's 15, but it was, they look kind of like the same age. I actually, you know what, now that I'm saying that, I'm thinking, what age were they both when they were playing these characters? Do we know that? She was 28, and I don't know how old, because there's a... Okay, there's, I have a problem with that. Yeah, there's a line in there, um, I I think when... She slips up. She, she slips up originally and says, says that she's 25, but then she says, I'm 28, or I mean, I'm 25. Yeah, she says I'm 28, 25, and I don't know what age he was when. But I mean the characters, this. like not not the characters, oh, the oh. actors. The actors. That's a good question. I kind of want to know that. Yeah, now. I think he was like 18 because he was born in 03. 
she was born in the 90s? Yeah, they, they grew up together, so their families... Um, She's 12 years older than him in real life. Yes. Okay, so she is actually older than him. I mean, one of the things that I, I, I find with these kinds of movies, too, because of the type of story when they put a teen with an adult, a lot of teens in general are played by adults, right? right? As we've kind of noted before. And I think um, in a way that deceives us because then we're watching the story saying, oh, this is a 15 year old with an adult, but we're actually not seeing that. And that's the same thing is true with Diary of a Teenage Girl. I think um, Belle Pally was like in her twenties when she played that character. And so we're actually seeing what it's like for a 20 something year old to be with like a 30 something year old. And here we're, we're, we're seeing really two adults playing one, playing a 15 year old. And I I think we, we kind of, because of that, it seems maybe less transgressive than it would seem if we actually saw what it looked like for a 15 year old to be in a relationship with a 20 something year old. Perhaps. Do you think the gender swap of it being, the female being older and the and the male character being younger makes it seem, and I, I'm going to use this word. It's not as aggressive as I want it to be, but like predatorial, like it, is it because it's a, also they play them like they're kind of close to the same age, even though they say that they're not, but does that make a difference? You think as well? I do. I do think that there's been a, a more of a history of making it okay for a younger teen boy to be with an older Mm-hmm. adult woman just there's been you know that's been joked about and kind of seen as i mean even as recently as like i mean in american pie and um i think that only in more and more recent years like there was that there's the tv series a teacher i don't know if either of you saw that but that series is about a high school student who has a relationship a sexual relationship with his teacher and in the TV series, they have warnings before the TV, each of the ones saying that, you know, about sexual abuse. The problem is that it doesn't really, again, played by someone he's in his 20s when he's playing this character. Right. But also he does he starts at 17 and he turns 18. And so I mean, I'm not saying it's ever right for a teacher to be with a student because it's not. Um, but when we're watching it, the heavy handed kind of warnings don't land the way I think they mean them to. And part of it could be a cultural um, sort of bias where we've just been so conditioned to believe like, of course, a young boy would want to be with an adult woman, which mm-hmm. I I don't think is true, but I think we've just been taught that. I, I was going to um, say it's even in reading your book and you, you t- I mean, I'm an 80s kid. So that was sort of a film trope of the teen sex comedies was the high school kid was going to land with an older woman. Right. Um, Or two friends create the uh, dream woman (laughs) in weird science. Yeah. (laughs) Van Halen made a song about, you know, hot for teacher. So Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, it's Stacy's mom. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So it's, it's all out there. And I think, I think that's a, a pretty good observation that had it been reversed, everybody would have felt more icky about it, I guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You used the word transgressive. That was one of the first questions I had for both of you uh, because it, it's funny. When I, when I bought this um, on Blu-ray, and you know how the studios, they, they put the poster art on there and some quotes, et cetera. 
and I was seeing quotes like fun comedy and, and they're, they're really talking about, you know, slice of life in the seventies. But after seeing this film, and I've seen it a couple of times now, the question that always pops up is, is this transgressive cinema? You've, you've mm. used that term a couple of times and, and you said it, it, I, I get the impression you are labeling it that. Well, I'm not labeling that. I think it it's seen as transgressive because it has a it depicts a relationship between someone who's 15 and someone who's in their 20s. Um, and I think you know in the in the society that we live in now, that's against the law, right? Um, and so, it, by that definition, it is transgressive. I don't find it a very shocking film. I mean, in terms of the whole Legion of Decency, where should it rank? <laughs> like, well, the Christian um, website didn't either, which shocked me. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, so I think that um, I, it, it, you know, that's why I was kind of thinking about Diary of a Teenage Girl because to me that film is just pushes the envelope so much more in how uncomfortable. It is, and I don't feel that level of discomfort when watching this, and mostly because their relationship seems largely platonic, even though obviously there's desire there. Um, although, you know, I want—I was curious what you both made out of the scene where they're on the waterbed, because the next morning, and this goes back to the Legion of Decency, perhaps, but like I felt like something happened in the ellipses there, because they go they go out to breakfast the next morning. And they are smiling at each other in a way that feels like they cross some line. And I don't know if I'm just reading into that scene or what. I, I don't know. What do you think, Brad? I, I have a thought on that. I I always took it as something did happen, whether or not it was full on sex. But I think they definitely took it somewhere. And I don't know where that where is if you want to you know, use the baseball analogy. Was it first base? Was it second base? I don't know, but I definitely think they, they definitely were hitting singles at least. Yeah. I, I did not think that at all. I, I actually oh, think one of the, one of the things that this film does very successfully is there, there is that, uh, let's just call it sexual tension that permeates these two characters in the relationship. And it's funny you, you bring out that scene because when they're sitting there and she's paying attention to, I think there's an oil shortage going on, mm -hmm. which has a very comedic, uh, um, some dialogue there, but he's looking through the newspaper and he's looking at all of the, um, what do you call it? The grindhouse, you know, sexploitation films. And he's kind of giggling and smiling. I, I think one of the things that these, these two people are never on the same maturity level for that to occur because, they share these moments, but I don't think it ever really goes anywhere. And um, it, it almost feels like uh, Anderson understands that if that happens, it truly goes into, I don't want to, I don't even know if it's transgressive cinema, but I feel like there's an underlying transgressiveness about this film. It's there. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I, I, I think that's, that's something Anderson likes to to do in his films is push buttons a little bit and point out where some of the cruelty of the world is. And this film, I think he does it so masterfully where there's tension. There's a little bit of transgressiveness. There's a lot of cruelty that is on display here. But on top of that is this, I, I, I hate to use the term, but it's almost romantic comedy that kind of sits on top of it at the surface level. 
I mean, I guess I was thinking very logically about it. I mean, we get, we hear information from that. There's another um, woman who says to her, like, did, did he ask you to give him a hand job yet or something like that? And, and so I felt like he's pursuing women for sexual acts and he clearly has an interest in her. Why isn't he doing that with her? Or, or does he do it off camera? I just, I wasn't sure what to make of that. That's a good question. I feel like, well, even the girl that they, that he meets when they open the waterbed store, he ends up, I guess, going into the bathroom and she right. sees them doing something. So again, I, I think as part of that tension or the relationship between them is they never commit to that physicality of it, but he's willing to, you know, do that with anybody else, but there's something about her that he doesn't put her um, in that camp that he has with other women. I, I think it's interesting. I, I guess I wasn't totally sure I was buying it. You know, in a film like Lost in Translation, for instance, mm -hmm. I love how that film pushes against what we expect to happen in this relationship. And there's also a bed, there's a bed scene in that in yeah, that movie. And but I totally bought it in Lost in Translation. I got it. I knew why he didn't want to cross that line with her and why she wasn't going to be the one to like make that first move. It, I really felt like it was it was logical and like emotionally logical in the story. Whereas here, I just I I, I just if it wasn't how I mean. I, I simultaneously couldn't quite understand why she had any interest in Gary. And I couldn't understand why Gary wasn't pursuing her sexually. So, that, so that's a great segue to another question I had. <laughs> um, and, and I'll ask you this, Brad, is, is Gary a sympathetic character or is he just a manipulative opportunist? I think a little bit of both more. So the second one, I, I think, you know, I I felt like good about Gary and then like the pinball thing. And it's like, you got this insider information and you're trying to capitalize on it. And, and, but at the end of the day, there's the line about, well, waterbeds are made out of, he goes, what do you think waterbeds are made of? He's like rubber. She's like, rubber's made out of oil. You dipshit. <laughs> at the end of the day, he's a dipshit. Like he's not, he, if he was half as smart as he thought he was, like he would be a genius, but He's not as smart as he thinks he is. He's not as talented as he thinks he is, but he is, he capitalizes on opportunity and he knows how to use people to his advantage. I think we see him really manipulate and use people, even his brother um, and his friends, but he's also, they show him scenes and he's like a good guy, but there's also scenes where he's using people to, to his advantage. So it's a little bit of both. Like, I don't know if like Gary's the guy that like 20 years from now would be like calling you about some NFT that he wants to sell or some Bitcoin <laughs> that he wants you to buy. Like that's exactly. <laughs> um, okay. Why, why is she with him? I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of with Michelle in a way like he's, uh, he does have like this confidence to him though. Mm -hmm. And when you look at it, you can definitely see a little like Philip Seymour Hoffman in him. And you're like, I get it. Like, yeah, you're kind of a goofy guy, but you also know how to get things done. And you walk into a restaurant and you know, the owner and you can get a tape, you know, like he's still got 
a little bit of power for 15. Um, he knows how to like play the game. So I, I don't know. I always, I, that's the one thing about the film is like, they make this, if someone else besides PTA makes this like Margot Robbie is the heartthrob in this. And like, you can obviously tell like, Oh, anyone on the face of the earth wants to be with Margot Robbie. Not that I'm saying that uh, a lot of Haim isn't attractive, but she's like unconventionally attractive in, in a different way. Um, and so is he. So like real people and I, I don't know. Sometimes it just like, I, I still thought, though like i don't know why they want to be together i felt their chemistry though like they Mm -hmm. have something now if it's like a friendship chemistry or like a relationship chemistry it's hard to tell but i definitely feel like they have vibes together because if they don't i don't think it i don't think that sexual tension or that relationship tension just works at all so i it has to work somehow for this film to work and i think it does yeah their their chemistry is undeniable within the first I don't know, five, 10 minutes. Oh yeah. Like when he walks up to her in line and like, or when she's like walking and he yeah. says something to her immediately, you're like, Oh, he's got some sort of charm to him. I don't know if it's like a slimy charm or like <laughs> a cocky charm or what kind of charm he has, but he's got it. And yeah, she falls, she falls for it immediately. I think, I think they're, I think I'm getting to the reason why I'm not buying it is because like he is the type of guy or character that I just don't, I don't understand how anyone falls for that. Frankly, like it's he will, just, s- he will sell you a 1997 it, it, Honda it, Civic. If you want one, like <laughs> it, it repulses me like exactly. And so I, I, I feel like, you know, there, I read, read a couple of reviews before of the film before yeah. we talked and there's a line in the, in, in the Manola Dargis New York times review that says with an explan- exclamation point, Alana deserves better. Damn it. <laughs> And that's, that's true. kind of how I felt. And, you know, there's that scene where they have the argument at the house and um, he drives out in the car. And that just like was gut wrenchingly realistic to me. I don't know how both of you felt, but I was like, I think I've had this showdown in it, my life. Yeah, <laughs> and it's not pretty. No, <laughs> you, know? it, you, you realize that their relationship at, at its core might be a little unhealthy. Totally. Yeah. Like yeah. they're, they're both kind of dependent and, you know, they're not communicating and, and there's a desperation that they both have and they're, they're playing a game, like who's going to win. And you know what, in that scene, she loses. Well, there's a power struggle. So yeah. I really think there's a power struggle that goes back and forth through this entire film that I don't know if it's uh, like, there's chemistry. You can't deny there's chemistry. Definitely. Well, it has to be for this film to work. There yes, has to be. I, I think there is too. I, I don't see his appeal, but I recognize that the characters have chemistry. I do see that. Do you see his appeal in the context of the rest of the men in the film? So I'm, I'm thinking specifically about the beginning of the film where they have this long tracking shot, just chemistry, just bubbling off the screen. And then as soon as she ends that conversation with him, and goes back by the photographer, he like slaps her butt. And you, I feel like in the context of this film, he stands out against the other men in the film. Okay, if that's the world we're living in, please just shoot me now. Well, maybe it wasn't. <laughs> and you brought this up, Michelle, and I think it's very important. 
to set this film in 1973, we already as an audience have an expectation that women will be belittled in this film because uh-huh. it's 1973 and there's going to be a lot of hey tootses and slaps on the ass and all sorts of deals. And we get it. And um, you're right. If the bar is, hey, I didn't sexually <laughs> harass you the first time I saw you, I got to be a good guy. It's probably wrong. But it maybe in 1973, the bar might have been a little lower. I mean, I think you're right. It was. I don't know if it was quite that low. But, you know, like for example, <laughs> there's this scene where where she's at the party, obviously desperate to get his attention. And she's wearing I'm not sure if it's a bikini or her underwear but I think it's whatever. a bikini because he, he, okay. he ends up putting like for every grand opening or for every sales event, there's got to be a girl in a bikini. Oh, God. Yeah. Right. So she's in her bikini and like she's desperately trying to get his attention. Um, and then she's spying on him. No guy even comes on to her. Like, and, and I'm like, you know, it's one of those things to me where I just, I, again, I was like having trouble with my suspension of disbelief. I'm like, if she was at this party in her bikini, like she has a nice body and she is attractive, like there would be men hitting on her at that party. And we're not seeing it because it's inconvenient for the plot because she's supposed to be sort of desperately pining for him. And if there's men after her, then that counters that. Now he's going to start to get jealous, but it wasn't realistic to me. That's, that's like the first yeah. scene where she's really sort of sexualized mm-hmm. up until that point. Like her dress is a little bit more moderate and then you turn the curtain and then she's coming out in a bikini mm-hmm. and it really ratchets it up. But you're right. He isn't, he doesn't seem to like go for that. I, I don't know. It's weird. I, I agree. I mean, I, I, I don't, under, I don't get it either. I mean, there's obviously chemistry, but I almost feel like I, I know this couple, like I went to college with this couple um, I won't say their name, <laughs> but is one of them selling uh, cars at this point? <laughs> uh, I don't no know. Comment. But, but, but what's funny is I know they're still together. Um, and I've, but are they always in the process of making up? Yes, they <laughs> yeah. are. Well, yeah. I was going to say just because people are together don't mean, doesn't mean that they're happy. I mean, but you know, I, I, I do feel like there's this constant power struggle because I, I remember seeing this and um, I only see them during reunions and stuff now. But everybody was like, well, that's not going to last long. And that's not. Gonna, and you're like <laughs> 30 years later and two kids later. And you're like, holy cow, they're still together. Um, but you you see on the surface, you go, I don't get it. It looks a little bit like oil and water, but I almost feel like, um, cause I, I've witnessed some of the blowups and stuff back in college. You're like, well, I, I feel like they live for that. Like that's, that's where they expect a relationship to be, or that's where they get their, their excitement from it. Um, and there's just this power struggle and it's like, well, who won today? Did, mm, did I win? Yuck. And And I feel like this movie has those elements where, Gary's going to win or Alana's going to win in these segments because I've, I've read reviews about this film too. And they talk about it, maybe meandering a little bit or it, it feels unfocused, but I'm, I'm trying to, I almost feel fascinated sitting on the sidelines and watching these two characters go at it because in, in the early seventies and watching her being frustrated and not really having a future and knowing what she wants to do, 
this kid thinks he has all the answers and knows exactly what he wants to do. And watching those two kind of um, go back and forth in life, it doesn't work out for either of them. Um, but I, I think that's fascinating. So can we talk about the ending then? Because the ending makes it seem like they're together, mm-hmm. I think, right? And that this is a good thing. I mean, the lighting at the ending is like, ah, yeah. right? That's like, a good question, I, I guess. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> is it a happy ending? I don't know. I, not I in my mind, I'm like, what is she doing with her life? Like, <laughs> pull yourself together, woman. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. I mean, where, where do you where do you land on it, Brad? You- no, I definitely think it, it's an indication that they get together because, like, the the lighting behind them is so sort of heavenly, you know, in a way, and it's very bright and bubbly, and you know, they just kiss, and it's like, yeah. Again, I don't know as a 40 year old man now seeing kids kiss on screen is starting to be like, I don't know if I'm, I'm, I'm good for this anymore. Like <laughs> when she peeks in the bathroom and there you hear the kissing sounds, I'm like, I don't want to hear kissing sounds ever again. I think it's just the grossest thing in the world. But um, yeah, I, I think they get together. And again, I think about what she is doing and what he is doing in the, the sort of dynamic that they have and, and whether or not, it's healthy, but I think there are people and I think their personalities of of this film indicate that they kind of like that push and pull and they like winning and they like losing and they like kind of that battle because it gives them something to do in a, in a, in sort of a way. I think, I think Gary is like a bored guy. That's why he's always doing stuff. And having this drama in his life kind of ignites a lot of that stuff. Yeah, that's true. Um, so, Michelle, from do you like the movie? I guess is a do you do you think it's a good film? I, I know there's some problems. I mean, there's some or some gray area with the characters. But what do you think about it as a film? I, I think it's an interesting film. It's not in my top teen films of all time. I'd say, but I think, you know, the interesting thing about, you know, sort of when you were saying that, Troy, about this, like, accusation of it being meandering in the plot, those parts don't bother me. Like, I actually am okay with how it goes down these paths. It feels like a little bit more like we're just trying to understand these characters, like it's a character study. And so even though some of these pieces of the plot feel like, wait, where is this going? How does this, it's really about that relationship. But I I don't, it seems like a really interesting and in my eyes, a little bit problematic of a choice to end on that moment of the two of them, because you could just as easily end on like a moment, like where he drives off in the car, like I said, you know, and, and this is their life too. And I, I guess, I don't know, is it idealizing a kind of relationship that's actually pretty yuck um not that a movie has to be showing us the ideal relationship but i think i you know i definitely think there's enough here to talk about and think about and and in my mind that makes it a good movie i thought about it after i watched it i was excited to talk about it and dig into it i think 
you know, after we have this episode, I'll probably still be thinking about like, oh, I forgot about that part where this happened. And, you know, so uh, to me, that is the kind of mark of a good film that has enough going on that you want to think it through. The characters are fascinating. It's super well acted. You know, all of that said, when I went, I as you were saying that it was nominated for Best Screenplay and all that, I mean, this was the same year that Nomadland and Promising Young Woman were both nominated. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, but Promising Young Woman is one of the most brilliant movies I've ever seen in my entire life. I, re- and I really And I just love that can't one. imagine yeah. anything winning Best Screenplay that year that that movie came out. <laughs> That's, you know, I guess I'm a little biased, but... It, you know, it's no contest in my view. Like they're this movie and that movie are worlds apart. And so. Okay. Um, Brad, your, yes, sir. your thoughts. I don't know how many times you've seen this thing, but uh, I know you, I know you're, you're a big Anderson fan. So where, where does licorice pizza land for you? I, I categorize, categorize this film as, as like a hangout film where you're just hanging out with people and the whole purpose of the the film is just, we're going to hang out, watch this relationship. It's like you do this and once upon a time in Hollywood, Hollywood with Rick and cliff. And like, I think it's perfect and it's, you know, basically set around the same time and, and all this stuff. And it's, it's, but for this one, like it's brilliant that it's in the seventies. Cause I feel like I'm in the seventies with this. Um, I think, performance wise it's pretty spot on even the weird stuff with bradley cooper and sean penn both of those coming into the film just make it really sort of weird in a way as well because they're in and out um but can can we all agree um in terms of performances when you talk about scene stealing performances sean penn and, and bradley cooper just they 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 take it from everybody their yeah, but, their scenes in here are pretty fantastic but for me, the thing I noticed about those this time is it's really distracting because when you have really? two main characters who are played by, let's just say like no name actors mm-hmm. and two just like Godzilla type actors come <laughs> into your film. Okay. It's literally like they're crushing Tokyo as they're doing it because they're just making such a big wave and you're like, oh, those are actors. These other people, you know, they're just kids. And, and, and I noticed that this time I'm like, wow, that was a choice to really kind of take the focus off of our relationship here and to, to bring in these guys for just a little long for a little bit. You don't, you don't think they held their weight against them. I do, but I also just think it's just a weird choice to, to, to have some, basically nobodies as your leads. And then you bring in Bradley Cooper and Sean Penn. It's just a choice. And and I was distracted this time by it. Uh, Overall, I really, I really like this. Um, You know, we can debate on the, the, the relationship and all that stuff. But I think at the end of the day, they do work as a friendship and it, does seem to sort of morph into more than just that. Um, I like that they push off the lot of the sexuality stuff and never really get explicit with it. Cause I think it would then start to get a little icky then. Um, Cause there are moments where I'm like, ah, I don't know if I enjoy watching these, this kid and this woman in a relationship together. But I think 
ultimately it works because of the performances and like you basically breezed over the opening of the film with the one or to start off. And I just think it like some of these shots in this film, you can tell this is a guy who's done this and is a master at it. Um, is it his best film? I don't think so. Um, but I do really like it as a period piece hangout sort of deal. Like this is once upon a time in Hollywood. If you had seven hours of your life that you wanted to just hang out with people with, like these would be the perfect films. Um, but yeah, I, I, I definitely think it's got its moments. Um, is there, I, is I, there a moment that sticks out in this film for you? There's, there's one scene. I, I gotta be honest with you. There is one scene that the first time I saw it, I thought about this scene for weeks. Mm, what is it? Okay. Yeah. Cause I, I mean, I, I have some scenes that I like, but never ones I'm like thinking about day after day. It's the waterbed delivery scene. So, um, th- this is the the Bradley Cooper. The moment. Bradley Cooper, okay. Yeah, but it, it's not that. So you have all these events, and and it is a hangout film. I, I like that terminology to it. But you you have this back and forth between these two main characters, and for the most part, all of their flaws and all their great stuff is on display and they feel authentic and fully developed. And so you get to the sequence where all of a sudden, um, which I, I think he's fantastic in. And I, I love the fact that um, Gary can gets this lecture from John Peters about, I'm going to kill your brother if you mess up my house, et cetera. They, they go up into the house and, and they're feeling the strain of, oh my gosh, the world's just kind of coming apart with the the whole gas shortage and their business fell apart. They're trying to sell this waterbed. They try yes, and set 44 cents a gallon back in the day. Yeah. Um, they, they are trying to, I don't know, get, get back at all of the, the meanness that's going on in the world and decide to flood this guy's house. Right. So, and, and that's not the scene yet. This is the setup, right? So they're, they leave that and then lo and behold, they run into him because he ran out of gas. So they have to take him to the gas station. They go leave him at the gas station. They go up to the hill. And this is where it starts. Gary decides, well, I'm really going to get back at this guy because I don't like the way that he treated me or he tried to hit on Alana. And so he takes the crowbar and starts bashing the window, right? I took it as like him not liking the fact that he hit on Alana. I, yeah. I, th- I think it's, it's all of it, right? It's yeah. this, this kid is frustrated and they get into the truck and next thing you know, there's no gas and they have to, they have to back this truck down. They have to get it off the hill, drive it backwards without gas. There's no music. It's really intense. She's driving that thing for real, as a matter of fact. And it's a really tense moment through this winding heel and they, they go, okay, we got to go left or right. They make a decision. They make it. And next thing you know, the truck is parked at the top of this hill. The kids went to get gas. They're acting like 15-year-olds, right? And she's sitting on the curb, and she's just yeah, shaking. Yeah, 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 And to me, it, it just, it's all these things that I, I looked at that scene, and I go, man, he, he kind of nails what life is like. You want, you think it's going to go this way. 
And then when there's an injustice, you go, I'm going to fight back at it. And then karma comes and goes, well, we're just going to take the gas out of you. You don't know what to do. Then you're careening down this hill backwards and you make it. And then you're sitting at the side of the curb and you go, well, crap, I got to change. Like I, I got to grow up or something. Yeah. She doesn't change. She tries. I think you're right. There's that moment when she's sitting on the curb and I really felt like she was thinking, what have I done with my life or what yeah. am I doing with my life? Only one person at that point in time is mature enough to see the, the impact of that event. But, but that event, it just, it, for whatever reason, it spoke to me because I'm like, you've, you've got this intent. I, I would call it intentionally messy film. I think it's intentional. I think there's so much gray area here. Um, and the comedic moments that are on the surface look comedic, comedic are actually very cruel. And there's there's so much cruelty in this film um, that that's just there in the background if you pay attention. And when it, it's it's this nuance that I think Anderson captures, which is here are all these cruel moments that are wrapped up around these sweet moments, and you got to take advantage of the sweet moments. But man, that whole sequence of driving a truck without gas backwards down a hill and then her reaction sitting on the curb, I'm like, yeah, that's he really captures, I think, what it is to be in like your mid 20s or something. And you're living all these highs and lows. And when you feel like you just got this, man, you, you, you really just barely escaped the worst thing possible and what should be an accomplishment for you. Your maturity level kicks in and goes, man, what am I doing? I got to grow in some fashion. Right. Whereas the 15-year-olds are just partying because they're alive and got away from John Peters. <laughs> right. Well, and then and then John Peters is too distracting to uh because he wants to sexually harass two young girls to to notice that, you know, that's them right there. Yeah. So um yeah, yeah I'm sorry, go ahead, Michelle. No, I mean, I think that the, these are some of the things that do make it a really good film because, you know, I had forgotten about that moment, actually, until you brought it up, Troy. And it is a very poignant moment. And I think, you know, as as uncomfortable as this relationship is to watch, in my opinion, or to, like, imagine through these characters, it is there's a lot of very a lot of truth in it, um, you know, like I said, that that argument scene was so uncomfortable to me, but it also felt very realistic. And there were a lot of moments like that where, you know, I didn't agree with what the characters were doing, but it just really rang as this could happen. Someone could act like this and be making these kinds of missteps or, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I... It just stuck out with me. Like I said, um, I guess that leads me to my thoughts about it. Cause I, I didn't talk about Anderson. I've, I've always felt Anderson has been a, he's, he's a good director, never, um, one that just got me crazy about him. And I haven't seen all of his films, but, um, I always thought he was an interesting filmmaker. I, I just was not interested in seeing his entire filmography. Uh, and to be quite honest, I've, I've probably only seen half of his films now. Brad, are you sitting down? I am. Okay. So um, it, it, with his films, it always takes me, I feel like, a couple of viewings before I get it. And I'm, I'm kind of with you, Michelle. I like Boogie Nights. I don't think it set the world on fire for me. But I like it. Now, 
this film is so good to me um, in that sequence. I'm like, you know what? I should really give this other film a chance that everybody has talked about. And I have just avoided like the plague because I keep seeing this one scene and it had been parodied over and over and over again. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to watch it because licorice pizza is so good. And Brad talks about this film all the time. And every time he brings it up, I'm pretty quiet about it. But to me, Wait, licorice are you pizza, tell, are you going to tell me you've never seen there would be blood? Licorice pizza was so good that it made me watch um, this little film called there will be blood. <laughs> Sorry, Brad. What? Yeah. Never What's happening. Yeah. When it, when it came out, I was a no country for old men and I'm like, I'm good. And when I saw the trailer for there will be blood, I'm like, Oh, it's Anderson. Yeah. I'll, I'll get around to that one. But then when you see that milkshake thing, get parried it over. I'm like, okay, I'm not interested whatsoever on it. Um, and it's one of those that I bought the DVD when it, you know, came out, sat there. I'm like, man, I'll get to this thing. But after I watched licorice pizza, I'm like, okay, I'm going to start going back through his filmography because if, if that one is as good as licorice pizza, I'm in. So I'm sorry, Brad. <laughs> now you have to have another episode about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, what'd you, what'd you think about that? Be blood? It was, it was pretty fantastic. It was good. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Newsflash. Okay. Thanks. Newsflash. Uh, yeah, it deserved all the accolade, but, um, I just real quick, I do have one question because we we've talked about some of the controversy, which is the relationship between the 25 and 15 year old. What about the controversy, the other part of the controversy with the American and the Japanese wives? Um, and that's based on an actual real restaurant that I guess was the first Japanese restaurant in that area. Um, did it bother either of you or, you know, what, was it something where it was like, ah, feels out of place, man. No, I think it felt right in place for 1973. Like I could totally see that happening okay. in real life. I don't know. I'm sure it did somewhere, but yeah, it 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 just felt like yeah, some scumbag bought his wife from Japan and can her you know embarrass her in front of people. I think it's one of those moments to me where at first it makes me really uncomfortable because it feels like it's a joke. And we're laughing at it. And the only thing that redeems it at all for me is that her expression in those scenes, which is just so cutting, like, and, and so it's very, you know, she's very quiet. Like we're not, it's almost like a subtext yeah. of the scene is what's going on in her head of like, you moron <laughs> um and so you see that and it's pretty brilliantly acted i think but you know I, I i don't know how i would feel if i were asian american watching a scene thrown into a movie like this like it i think that you know i will say as like an italian american when i see movies that are kind of stigmatizing or stereotyping italian americans i really get frustrated and i'm so sick of seeing the same kind of depiction and jokes over and over again like can't you people think of new things <laughs> to make funny um and so i you know yes it's 1973 but i also think that like I hate that as an excuse to just throw in whatever things we want and say, but that's how it was back then. Like that feels like a cop out in a way, but like I said, her expression undermines it as just 
a gratuitous joke or, you know, completely oblivious. It it does feel a little breakfast at Tiffany's ish. Mm-hmm. And, and without her reaction or performance, I, I think I think it would feel very awkward. I, yeah. I, I think it still feels awkward watching it, but I do um, enjoy the fact that Anderson's smart enough to kind of put that other layer on there of it. it her reaction is like, is everybody else seeing this? Like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> right. And Jerry's kind of a dipshit. Yeah, that's true. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, one more question before we wrap up, cause I know we're on a tight schedule, uh, and this is probably a heavy hitter. So when, when these kind of films come out and you see the criticism and, and you have something like Anderson, I, there's always a question that pops up. Um, and that's what, what's more important. Is it the intentions of the characters that are in the film, the intentions of the director who's directing the film or the audience's reaction to all of it. Because I feel like you could tackle this movie on those three levels. Um, but which one stands out? Hmm. So I don't think you make any sort of piece of art without expecting some sort of a reaction. Cause that's why you're doing it. Mm-hmm. And, and so to create a film like this, and not expect anything I feel is a, a bit of uh, being a little naive. I struggle because I think it's, this film is well done enough. to where I, like, I want to give it like the okay, but then it's like, well, we're, I don't know where the line is, right? Like, I, I don't know where the line is. Do I feel uncomfortable watching their relationship? I don't. Now, if we swapped it, would I feel uncomfortable i don't know because that's not the film that i i watched in this context but yeah it's really hard to just blanket everything because i i don't there's so much subtext and text and all sorts of deals and i just i don't know i don't know where it is okay what about you michelle what do you think i'm torn between the director's intention and the audience's reaction i don't think that the characters have to behave in an in an earnest and positive way for us to like a film or for it to be a good film but the thing is that the director's intention is sort of fixed in time and an audience reaction to a film changes over time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're in a particular moment where our reaction to this film will be something specific. Will that always be the reaction to that film? I'm not sure. Um, but I, I also agree with what Brad is saying is that, you know, it when you make a film or you write something and you put it out there, you can't be like, this is what I meant. (laughs) Like what you meant is not really relevant. It's how it's read or understood. And so I guess if I had to choose one of those things, I would probably choose the audience's reaction. That said, as a director myself, like I make work that I want to make that says what I want it to say. (laughs) I kind of hope that the audience gets it the way that I, that I want them to. Um, But and I think here, you know, the uh, our reaction to the film could be very varied. I'm interested, by the way, in why critics loved it so much more than audiences did. Were you able to get a kind of handle on where the discrepancy between, what did you say, 90-something and 60-something? Yeah, audience felt it was too long and meandered, and then critics praise performances and the set pieces and the, the set dressing and all that stuff. Different criteria. It sounds yeah. like, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, uh-huh. I mean, it is. I, I think never, also there's a disconnect because if you, I guarantee audiences went into this thinking this is going to be a 70s comedy with some drama elements to it, et cetera. And if you, and if you don't know Anderson in his filmography, they may have been taken aback by either the subject matter, some of the controversies that we talked about. Yep. Um, the length and everything else is, is probably going to hurt it too. But I, I do think somebody would look at this and go, wow, there's some really uncomfortable moments in here that I just didn't expect. Mm-hmm. And, and like I said, I mean, we, we could sit here and dissect it, but I do think there are some cruel moments that are hiding in the background that at the end of the day, you're like, you, that's not the seventies. I mean, just think about um, how the film kind of deals with Alana and what she has to go through and what females and minorities would have to go through um, in this film altogether. And then how Gary uses her uh, and undermines her in some of these things. But yet again, it goes back to that power struggle back and forth. So this, this film feels very honest and authentic in, in some of those things. And for every comedic beat or, Oh, that's a sweet moment. And wow, look at that chemistry. There's a moment just sneakily right there where you go, wow, that doesn't feel right. Um, and I, I think this film kind of packs a lot of those moments together. I agree. And I, I don't know what the answer is between those three. I would say that's why we have criticism to, uh, (laughs) (laughs) because to me, this is a great example of, I, I would say, well, licorice pizza is all three. Like you, mm-hmm. you have to look at the characters' intentions. You have to look at the director's intentions, and you have to look at the audience feedback. And that's where the movie lies. It lies in all three of those. I, I think that's the sign of it being a really good film is because it can do that, and you can break it down in those three. Where most films, you can only look at the director's intention, or you can only analyze the character's intention, or all you have is the audience's reaction to it. And you know, maybe the one element is kind of meaty to talk about in the other two, or there's not much there to me. This film has something to talk about in all three of those areas, which I find fascinating. Um, any other final thoughts on this? Will there be a sequel? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe marriage story is the sequel. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, if they get along like this while they're not married, I can't even imagine how they're going to struggle their way through a marriage. (laughs) Sounds rough. I, I agree. (laughs) Uh, so I'll start with you, Michelle. I, we asked this question, this one bombed at the box office, but, uh, is after talking about the film, do you think licorice pizza is actually a bomb? No. Okay. Not a bomb. Awesome. Brad, I'm, I'm pretty sure. uh, Not, not a bomb for me. Okay. Well, we'll make it unanimous. Definitely not a bomb. Um, Michelle, I know you have to leave. Uh, I, I thought just one real quick plug on all this stuff where people can find you. Um, Brad and I are going to stick around because we have a couple of listener feedback to get out there and cool. talk about next week's show. Cause I know you're on a tight schedule and I, I got to tell you, we are just so super happy that you took, um, time out of your busy schedule for us. Cause we, we love having you on the show. We love these conversations. You knock it out of the ballpark every time, but where can more people get more Michelle Meek? So I have a website, michellemeek.com. It's M-I-C-H-E-L-E-M-E-E-K.com, one L in Michelle. And you can contact me there, learn more about uh, my recent book, Consent Culture and Teen Films, my film, Bay Creek Tennis Camp, and other writings and other, yeah, I just, I wrote a piece about Barbie and my midlife crisis that 
people seem to really have been enjoying. So check that out. (laughs) You need to do do more, Michelle. (laughs) I was such a slacker. (laughs) I know. Do stuff. A couple more books. But I I love being on this show and I'm happy to do it anytime. Truthfully, it's so much fun. We are going to look, you have carte blanche. Anything you want to talk about, any film, we will always make time. I would love for us to do another little special episode where we do something thematically like you programmed for the last one. So okay, we cool. definitely need to put that together, but I know you have to go. We're right at the time. Thank you so much. It is always an amazing blast when, when you come on and just grace us with your film knowledge. So thank you so much. Thanks yes, thank so you. much for having me. Okay, Brad, um, real quick. Should we talk about some feedback? We should talk about some feedback because I love feedback, Troy. Okay. My we, ego just needs it. Give me. We feedback. got some great recommendations and some new listeners uh, have written in. So real quick, I'm going to start with Mia. Uh, this was real, real, just to the point. Okay. I, I love this kind of feedback. So here you go. Toys, 1982. It was a bomb. Something to consider. Mia. There you go. Add it to the list. The Robin Williams added, film. Okay. Added. This Not to be confused with the toy, right? No, no. Was that <laughs> did that one bomb? I thought I just remember it being on HBO all the time growing I don't up. Know, that's a problematic film. <laughs> okay, all right. This one's from John. Uh, he says, "Hey guys, great episode as always." The case I actually caught Mask of the Phantasm opening day Christmas. Great film. I have three recommendations for you. The first two are Breaking Bad episodes. Oh boy, here we go. The first one, The Taint, a trauma release. We know how much you love those. <laughs> The the taint. Yes. And uh, the live action fist of the North star movie. That was uh, what was that? Gary Daniels, right? Sean, was it Chris Penn in that too or something? Ooh, I'm not sure, but I loved fist of the North star anime. Okay. You haven't seen the live action version. I haven't. I have it on laser disc. It's awesome. Uh, Oh, he has a Halloween recommend. Okay. For the month of Halloween movies, I'm going to go with the maniac remake remake starring Elijah Wood. As far as remakes go, this film is top notch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Put that on the list. On the list. Okay. We have one from Alex. He's a new listener. I'm listening to some of the back catalog and got to the Brigsby Bear episode last night. I had heard about it when it came out, but I knew nothing about it. You guys so vehemently saying, pause the podcast and watch the movie first made me pull it up on Hulu. I'm so glad I did. That movie is incredible. It's absolutely in my top 10 now. Totally unexpected to love it so much. Hey, we got an accomplished Brigsby bear fan. Now, Alex, go watch love and monsters. If you haven't watched that one, Uh, last one from Cody, love the pod. You guys have gotten me into movies. I never would have known to look for. I'd like to submit a pick for the October spooky movie drawing Halloween, the curse of Michael Myers or Halloween six as most know it. Apparently, if you go up to Paul Rudd and told him you saw Halloween six, He'll give you your $10 back. I rest my case. Thanks. Uh, we Didn't they do a producer's cut of that? Is that the I one? I believe they did? they did. Yes. All right. Put that in the mix. I'm really curious about that one. All right. Well, hey, we're closing the door on all the Halloween recommendations. We will actually pick um, those movies. We're going to pick five movies, right? We are. Yeah, because October... We're recording the first one next Sunday, which will be the first. And then we're going to, yeah, yeah, do five of them. Spooky season's right around the corner. So how we about got like what? 10 to 15 films to choose from? So we've got a lot. So I'm excited. Yeah. Uh, when are we going to do those picks, Brad? 
So we are going to record Breaking Brad in the next few days, and we decided that we will just choose them there, give people another reason to listen to us talk about labor pains. Oh boy! And we will we will tack that on at the end of that, do a special drawing, and let the winners know, and then we'll contact the winners based on what films we pick. But we will pick five. I love it. It's going to be so much fun. Thank you, everybody, for sending your picks in. Thank you, everybody, for sending feedback. I mean, the stuff we've been getting on social media, we had somebody reach out today who was just found an old picture from Instagram. I think we were doing the uh, Amityville 3D. Was that one yeah. of the spooky films? Yep. And he was asking about the 3D glasses. So we, we love the interaction. Uh, Brad, if anybody wants to write us and tell us what they think about the movie that we talked about this week or give us recommendations of bombs that we should cover, how do they get a hold of us? Yeah, that's not a bomb pod at gmail.com or head over to not a bomb podcast, hit the contact us button or look us up on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Awesome. Brad, uh, next five shows are spooky films. We're going to pick those. Yes. And we've got labor pains right around the corner. Oh, my goodness. Um, uh, I don't know what to say about that. Okay. You know, I, I, I could say I can't imagine anything being worse than Love on a Leash, but there's always a possibility. Yeah, I watched the trailer to Labor Pains, and thank goodness it has background music. So that might mm. be the thing that sets yeah, it there, above Yeah, there is music, so it actually <laughs> can like can be a film. And again, we, we do not encourage anybody to watch the films are breaking Brad, just listen to the show. Um, they're they're not suitable for playing out loud at work, but uh, they are fun. Someone told me that uh, someone posted on Facebook today, and Randy had said Brad is definitely not worth it to do this. And Randy is right. You guys are going through a lot of pain with me, and I'm definitely not worth it. But oh, you're worth it. I love you, man. Come on. Uh, what other podcast should everybody be listening to? Yeah, that is Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, Watch Skip Plus, the VHS Files, the Mixtape Podcast. Zoe is now back with yes. Backlook Cinema Podcast. Zoe, welcome back. We missed you, buddy. Uh, Night of the Living Podcast and Raiders of the Podcast. And there is a YouTube channel, too, to check out. Oh, yeah. You keep telling me to add that. And I keep forgetting. What is that? Do you know what it's called? Uh, something different to talk about. I, think. I, will, I will add it to the uh, show notes. Okay. Just to, just to, yeah. Because and, I forgot to mention. That's okay. And and folks, I, we can't say this enough. Brad and I um, have a blast anytime we get to talk with Michelle Meek. She's super busy. Obviously, you heard. But if you get a chance, you can head over to Amazon. Definitely grab her book, Consent Culture and Teen Films, Adolescent Sexuality in U.S. Movies. It's a really interesting read. Um, we'll definitely have her back to maybe talk about, I think, some of the films that she talked about in the book. We're, we're always looking for a chance to interact with her. Uh, given her schedule for her you know, to just come in for an hour and a half was a pretty big deal, So, especially in the school season. But please go visit um, her website. Look at her books. Definitely follow her on Instagram, any of the social media. The articles that she's talking about, she will post links to those. Um, and, uh, she's right. I mean, she's, she's writing constantly for all of these different venues. Um, her Barbie article was fantastic. It was a lot of fun to read, but, uh, yeah, please go out there and support Michelle, Brad, anything else we should be discussing at this point? Unfortunately not. That means I have to turn over licorice pizza and open up the book of labor pains and not ready. 
Not ready yeah. for it, Troy. Were, were you okay? I mean, with the uh, the the revelation there that I, oh, that there would be blood. I you know now that I think about it, you never would weigh in on the there would be blood slash no country for old men. So I was just like, oh, Troy just must disagree with me. Never did I imagine that it was because you'd never seen there would be blood. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I think it is one of the most beautiful films ever created. What's what's funny is uh, Tabitha had watched it with me too, and when I told her what it was about, and and she she, I, I don't want to say she didn't um, sound like super excited, but then when she was looking at the DVD and stuff, she's like, I I think there's something here, and it it was <laughs> <laughs> wow, I think there's something here with this Paul Thomas Anderson. Well, and- I mean, she's excited about watching Labor Pains with me, so take that yeah. for what you will, yeah. but. Uh, yeah, I got to say, I mean, I've, I've always liked him as a filmmaker, like what we talked about, but it's just, I, I'm sure everybody has that film where we would never like film shame anybody. Uh, I think we, we have fun like, oh, you haven't seen this. And our good friend Alex, who's been on the show a couple of times. I mean, I love the fact that he's discovering all these films, but he just, he's, he's got a long way in his journey. Uh, and heck, all of us have these little blind spots, but what I love about doing this show is every time I've got this big glaring blind spot like Lawrence of Arabia or There Will Be Blood, talking with you and especially some of the movies that we talk about or you pick force me into, okay, now it's time to go watch that thing. Like there's going to be yep. some relevance and I'm, I'm going to appreciate it a little bit more. I still have never seen Gone with the Wind and I'm, you know what? I'm the more, the longer I go, the, the more I feel like I'm okay with it. Uh, no, I was at a thrift store the other day and I saw it for a dollar and I did buy the DVD for a dollar so i do have it so maybe i will throw it in at some point well i hey it's one of these things where and i'm not rushing out to it but you know licorice pizza is that film now where i'm like yeah i got to go through the rest of his filmography so i now officially own everything that he's directed i just gotta find time to go through it all but i wanted to make sure there will be blood um i I would definitely watch that one because i i was really curious about that um, story versus this one, what kind of similarities would, would exist outside of maybe the narrative format, et cetera. Um, it, it's pretty interesting. Films really tackle complicated relationships within characters. I mean, there be blood. He's got relation complicated, complicated relationships with a lot of people. And then the masters like that inherent vices like that. Yeah. It's, uh, you wonder about people who make uh, films that center around, problematic relationships and intention within relationships. Well, and there's, there's no denying, uh, that director. Now, if they made can a film some, about not a bomb, it, it would be perfect relationship. You know, just there's no, yeah, time. actually it'd be a pretty boring film. There's really no drama yeah. behind the scenes. It's very businesslike. Unfortunately, yeah. it would be like air. It'd be like, you know, you're Matt Damon. I'm, you know, Ben Affleck. Just, Oh, we showed up to a meeting five minutes early again. Yep. Yep. <laughs> we were on time and ready to go and well prepared. Awesome. All right, man. Well, uh, it, I love doing the show with you. Um, I, I love the films that we talk about. I'm really excited about doing the picks for October. We have some great choices. So at the end of Labor Pains, we'll be with Sammy and Jose, and they'll help us, um, I guess, decide the winner. So with that... I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, or evening. Thanks for downloading the episode. Like we said, go visit Michelle Meek's website. You're going to love it. And uh, come back here next week with our first Halloween pick. We have no idea what it's going to be. That's what's going to make it so exciting. 
but we're going to give you the whole list uh, for October so you can play along. So we'll we'll catch you then. Don't lose your head. <laughs> <laughs>